Hi, this is Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, and we're pleased to be joined this week for the podcast by uh, State Senator Andrew Stewart-Cousins, Democratic Leader of the State Senate, Minority Leader of the State Senate. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to be here. Thank you. So we're talking on a Friday morning, and uh, it was a bit of a crazy or crazier than usual week in Albany, uh, especially in your chamber. Um, do you want to just give a little recap from your perspective on, on what just happened, a little bit of chaos and contentiousness in the Senate? Well, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> yes, well, you certainly may. <laughs> uh, we, we try and avoid those kinds of adjectives because we really are very clear that people send us there to do their work. And what happened this week was unfortunately an example of us trying to put forward some legislation that has been hanging around for quite some time. I think your listeners may know, or maybe they don't know, and it's important that they, they do uh, realize that New York, with all its progressivity, when it comes to women's reproductive rights, we were in the forefront in 1970, but we are certainly behind the pack in 2018. So in 1970, the Republican-led Senate put the first abortion laws on the books in New York State. And they did it not only under the Republican-led Senate, but they did it with 12 Republican votes with the majority of the Democrats who decided that women did have reproductive health choices. So the 1970 bill predated Roe v. Wade. And so the 1973 Roe v. Wade laws are even more updated than our 1970 laws. And our 1970 laws put abortion in the criminal codes under homicide. So we have been trying to take the abortion uh, law out of the criminal codes and put it in the health codes where we, be we believe it belongs. And we are also trying to have the same protections for women here that are given in Roe v. Wade. So for us right now, it's, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't even deal, I mean, it's only uh, kind of dire circumstances, you know, uh, that you would have this, this uh, procedure. And by the way, you know, on, after a certain point, you know, y you can't. And we've had some terrible cases where the, there's no fetal viability, you know, and, and people are forced to, to carry the baby to term uh, or leave this, the, the state you know, having to go out west or whatever in order to to terminate the pregnancy. So we just feel that in New York we can lead, and we should lead. We have led, and we've done it in a bipartisan way. So that's the backdrop. We had uh, what we call, because we don't have the majority, we have ways that we can push forward bills. 
And one of the ways that we push forward bills is by having what they call a hostile amendment. So, you know, your, your listeners should understand, as I'm sure they do, <laughs> that the majority rules and they're the ones that set the policy and they're the ones that actually, you know, make the decision. But there is a voice for the minority and, and that's called a hostile amendment. And what we were trying to do was to advance two uh, of these amendments that related to women's health. One codifying uh, Roe v. Wade for New York, and the second was this uh, Comprehensive Contraception Care Act. And that basically says that instead of having to have a prescription every month from your doctor in order to get your birth control pills, for example, you could actually have them for, for a whole year. I mean, and, and again, for people who are, are concerned, and, and we, we all are, I don't think anybody is, is telling, you know, people that, you know, abortion is birth control, or, and that is not the, the point. But we also understand that, that one of the ways uh, to reduce unintended pregnancies is, is by having contraception. So uh, at least can we agree that we can make it easier for people to have contraception and, and you know, make that available. So uh, that particular bill is actually carried, sponsored by a Republican. Uh, Senator Bonacek carries that bill. So here we are saying we're at the last weeks of the session because we'll be done on June 20th. And once again, these important issues have not been brought up. And the way that we do that is to, to do what's called this hostile amendment. Now, the Republicans are at an, an interesting point in their lives as well. Yes, very interesting. Because in order to have a majority, in order to be the majority, you, you really have to have a majority. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it's, it's a hollow uh, majority. And one, first of all, five of them have already said they're not running again. But one of them who says they're not running again is not there for the most part. He is serving our country, he's in the Navy, and apparently he has orders, and he has not resigned, but he's not there. So the magic number for the majority in our chamber is 32. And I believe that um, we're at this this critical juncture because this gentleman is not there, Senator Croce is not there for the most part, so they actually have 31 people, uh, including Simca Felder, who is, as we know, a registered Democrat that has been sitting with the Republicans since his election, and uh, of course we have 31 as well, so it's actually even. So we decided that this is an opportunity, it's usual to, to again do what we do with the hostile amendment and have an opportunity, who knows, especially with the fact that you've got a Republican who's actually sponsoring the Contraceptive Care Act, if, you know, maybe that person is actually going to vote for the bill they're carrying. How novel. <laughs> and, then, and then we would actually be able to pass that amendment. So we thought this was going to happen and uh, for two days in a row the Republicans decided that rather than take up the um, women's health uh, amendments that we wanted to put forward, that they'd really rather just end the session. And so they did that 
two days in a row. They, they did it very unceremoniously the first day. And the second day, we always have, just like you, you know, most people do, if you're going to have a meeting, you have an agenda. It's no different in our chamber. So we did not know what was on our agenda when we walked in yesterday morning because they had not printed an agenda unprecedented every day before the night before the meeting you have a roster of what bills are going to be taken up period so they hadn't taken up the bills you know the day prior because they didn't want to vote on this these these two amendments and then we walked in yesterday without any agenda at all and so nobody knew what was on the agenda. And then they decided to say, well, we're going to take up what was happening yesterday. Well, that's not the way we do things. You have an agenda for every day. And frankly, if you're just going to take up the agenda from yesterday, all you got to do is change the cover sheet. You know, <laughs> put, put the new date on it. Right. And we'll, right. But they didn't do that. And so they, they, you know, in this unprecedented move, we decided that... Um, you know, it's one thing not to want to take up the the amendments, but it's another thing to decide now to disregard what has been the longstanding uh, rules of decorum in that chamber. So we proceeded not to vote for the one thing from yesterday, or the day before, rather, that they brought forward, and then they realized that this was not a path that we were going to be able to go down. So then they pulled the plug on the, on the uh, you know, day again. So we will go back next week. Uh, I, you know, obviously we're still we're we're asking for a vote on things that are important. And if you agree, you don't agree, whatever it is, just take a vote. Tell us. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You started your answer by talking about adjectives that you prefer to avoid, <laughs> and the adjective that has been used about these incidents or episodes this week is the D word, dysfunction that this is an example of dysfunction in the words of some analysts and observers, indicative of a general state of dysfunction in the state Senate. Do you feel as though that is accurate? Is this dysfunctional? Well, frankly, what I described, I would think, is dysfunctional. I think it's, it's clear that, you know, the, the Republicans don't have a functional majority. And as a result of that, they really can't pass anything, uh, certainly without us, and their avoidance of these key issues as it relates, again, to women's health and reproductive rights seem to unravel them in such a way that they don't even want to do session. So I don't like, you know, the adjective, but I believe that the Republicans at this point are really dysfunctional because they don't have their majority and they and they don't want to face things things that they feel somehow uh, you know opposed to so is it your stance as as the minority that right now it, yeah. it has an equal number um, but is it your stance right now that you would do that similar thing you'd vote down things that probably would pass under other circumstances unless they do allow some of these things to come for a vote I mean are we in a, a bit of a um, I don't know, game of chicken of sorts here, a standoff of sorts for the next week as well? I don't think it'll be a standoff. I think that people have to realize where we are. You know, if we are in that place where we have the equal number of, of people, then, you know, in order to function, we have to function together. And, and 
you know, I don't believe the answer is to tear up all the norms of the way the house functions because you don't have the number. I think it's to work the way we normally do in a cooperative way. So, uh, again, for us, I don't believe it should be dysfunctional. I believe, however, uh, no matter what it used to be, you know, the circumstances have changed for the Republicans. And, you know, the best way to deal with that in the next two weeks is to do it in, in a way that um, is, is more collaborative and certainly a way that respects the way, you know, the institution runs. So uh, the session will end, as you mentioned, within the next two weeks, and then the next sort of news hook will be the elections in the fall. And obviously the question is whether we will still be at 31-31 or 31-32 then. Right now, what is your assessment of the prospects for your party to take control of the Senate? And what is the message to voters about why that matters? What will be different uh, if Democrats do have a clear operational majority in that sure. body? Sure. Um, I think the prospects are good. We have been experiencing uh, nationally a blue wave when you see what happened in, in Alabama. I mean, you know, I'm even looking at Georgia with the prospect, frankly, of having in Georgia, you know, the first uh, African-American, the first woman governor. I mean, uh, you know, I think people are awakened and they become more engaged since the 2016 elections. They realize that their votes count more than they ever have realized, I think certainly, you know, since I've been involved in politics. And for Democrats, in what is believed to be a blue state, I think it really has started to, um, you know, cause a, a, an effect that is positive for Democrats. I'm in Westchester County, and the special election that we just had on April 24th, and again, the, the Republicans gerrymandered that seat uh, because I have been part of that. When I first ran in 2004, I beat a Republican, and it was a rectangular-shaped district. And after the 2010 elections where so many Democrats across the nation were bumped off, the Republicans were, were back in charge. And um, when they got to draw the lines, you know, my rectangular district, which is district number 35 for your listeners, now is the smiling profile of an old man with a scraggly <laughs> beard. Okay, so, so they really went out of their way to make the my companion district my district mostly democrat and the companion district which was held by a, a democrat susie oppenheimer uh who then retired they wanted to make that extremely republican george latimer uh who was a democrat won that seat and when he was elected uh again as part of a huge blue wave he he unseated the incumbent rob astorino who's republican county executive uh, who'd been there for two terms and he had a double digit lead at the end of that and when we did the special election shelly mayor senator shelly mayor now won that seat by i think about 14 points so i believe that new york uh, is part of this blue wave and i believe that the Republicans see that too, which is why five of them have already announced that they won't be running. And now, not every seat is a slam dunk, but there are um, great candidates that are coming forward. 
and there are, uh, you know, real opportunities in some of some of those seats. I think that you know the Bill Larkin seat with uh, Assemblyman Scoofus is is a really, you know, good opportunity, and um, I. I think we also have some some opportunity in Long Island. We have two senators from Long Island now, and of course that was usually a stronghold for Republican senators. And after Dean Skelos's uh, uh, departure, um, we were able to flip that seat and retain that seat. And with um, John Brooks, you know, which we think will be a little bit more difficult, but nonetheless, you know, he is, um, as is Todd Kaminsky, you know, a, a, a really good, you know, solid senator who understands what the people on the island need and and has really, I think, started to, to, to really take hold of the district. And uh, I think bodes well for what's happening. We had... Um, in the Marcelino race two years ago, Jim Garin, who is running again, now only lost by about one percentage Very close point. Vote, yeah, yeah, it was a really close race. So, I mean, we have a lot of hope there. So, I think there's there are good things on the horizon. So, I don't believe we'll be at, you know, 31 or 32, 31. My hope is that that we will have, you know, a, a bigger margin. But we take nothing for granted. And... Um, you know, we, we will be working hard, you know, every day. We just work hard every day. And when we get there, we will do things, uh, again, that I think people expect us to do. We're obviously uh, very focused on the economy. I mean, we're always going to be looking at New York as one state, as a state that that needs a variety of things to happen in different places. People are extremely sensitive, certainly with this whole Trump uh, tax situation. Again, I said I represent Westchester, right. and we have extremely high property taxes as it is and so you know part of part of us coming together was was certainly driven by even you know these things that are coming down from Washington I mean such regressive policies and to have you know a cap on your your deductions in terms of your state and local taxes and and in a place like Westchester, you cap that at $10,000. You know, I represent Scarsdale, among other places. And, and most people understand that, that the property values, they're extremely high, and so are the taxes. So, um, you know, w trying to find some, some reasonable way, you know, to circumvent some of these, these policies really, you know, require... Uh, a concerted effort in the right direction and in the same direction, whether it's how you treat immigrants, whether it's, it's even climate denial. You know, I'm sitting in a chamber where nobody wants to mention that there's any kind of climate change. I mean, it is, is it electoral reform. I mean, we're a state that doesn't have early voting. You know, so many people, you know, cannot just, you know, determine 
you know, their whole life around a Tuesday in November anymore. You know, there has to be, we, there's so many things that we could do, you know, in addition to, obviously, the things that we're bringing up today. We, we still haven't been able to pass the, the Child Victims Act. We, we can't pass the DREAM Act. I mean, you know, there are just... Right, there's a, there's a list. There's of, a host of mm -hmm. things that people expect for, I think, New Yorkers to lead on, for us to be able to lead the nation on, as well as uh, create, you know, uh, opportunity for, for New Yorkers of every stripe. So that, so that I think you just gave a, a, a pretty good rundown of maybe close to 10 issues that a, a democratically controlled state senate would really try to pursue and, and part of the case that the governor's made and others have made for um, a fully, you know, fully democratic control at the state level um, of the governor's seat, obviously, and then both both chambers of the legislature. On the on the issue of, of flipping some of those seats and making that happen, obviously the backdrop is sort of this unity, this this right. democratic unity. So um, after the budget was passed this year, you, the governor, Senator Klein, who used to lead the Independent Democratic Conference, had an event together. You announced that they, the IDC was folding back into uh, the Democratic Conference under your, your leadership. Um, do you feel unified? You know, those former IDC members um, seem they have to hold their seats. They're all right. being challenged right. in primaries. Um, you know, the governor seemed hesitant for a long time to get involved here or make this happen. What is the degree of unity right now? Are you, do you feel that you and Senator Klein have a good working relationship? Do you trust him? Well, we always did have a good working relationship. You know, I mean, I, uh, uh, when, when I ran initially in 2004, it was the first time that he'd run for the Senate as well. So uh, he was successful, as I said, and I had lost by the 18 votes. And then, you know, I made it the next time around. And I've always had a good relationship with him. And frankly, I was disappointed and surprised when he um, decided to be, you know, form this independent democratic conference. So, I mean, you know, obviously it hasn't been easy, uh, you know, you know, being apart and and seeing what we saw unfold, but um, we're at this stage where the unity, again, we understand, is not only beneficial for for us as Democrats, but it really matters for the people of New York. You know, after the 2016 elections again and they realized that the national scene was the national scene and people started looking to the states to find out okay what's the next thing that's coming up and and how do the states impact the federal government I think people really started getting this civic lesson and and, and knitting things together and when they looked at New York and they realized that this was technically and should be technically a, a quote-unquote blue state, but realized that there was, you know, an independent group and there's an independent person and people didn't understand that. And I think it became more difficult to rationalize on every level why this was a good idea, <laughs> especially when you're faced with so many things that are, you know, antithetical to what you actually say you believe in. And you're 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 working with people, uh, and again, 
I'm a bipartisan person. I know how to work across the aisle. It's, I'm okay with that. But there are fundamental differences. And if you're in a situation where those fundamental differences can never be brought up, they can never be addressed, and meanwhile you're being pummeled, you know, by someone who, who uh, you don't agree with at all, you know, I think things have to change. So it was a bigger picture. And coming back, I think, for the IDC became uh, reasonable and logical, and I think for the governor as well. Do you and think the governor could have effected this reunification earlier? Did, did, he, did he choose to tolerate the IDC as an independent thing? Could, could he have, you know, I, I know the ground work you're saying was laid for this idea, right. for this deal by all that right. happens in 2016, but there's certainly before that there was plenty of talk about the effect that the lack of unity was having on what the state could do and could not do. Could Cuomo have made this happen earlier? Well, I think that, you know, it's hard to say, but, um, you know, I... I Like I always say, he did make it happen. Okay, so he, he made it happen. So uh, since he since he made it happen, obviously, I think the environment was very conducive to this. And so uh, maybe it happened faster, maybe it happened easier. Uh, but I I don't think he was terribly concerned about the situation because as far as he was concerned maybe you know it was it was manageable and I think it's uh, it's gotten to the point where it it was looking unmanageable uh, because of all the different factors and so uh, he asserted himself do you think it, sorry do you think it could happen again I mean it strikes me that you know we have the the gang of four incident where briefly and kind of disastrously people show that they can break off from the party and for a while wield, wield outsized power, power. Then we had the IDC situation where a small group realized they could do the same thing. Even if you have 35 Democratic senators, 37, a small group could get, get together and say, hey, we're a minority of our conference, our caucus, but if we break away, we're in the catbird seat. And I wonder if this unity deal and the fact that it basically has, you know, withdrawn any support uh, for the primary challenges, uh, there's really no punishment per se for what's occurred. Is the message sent that someone could try this gambit again and for a few years wield the kind of outsized power that the IDC did? I think did? people are awake. You know, it's hard to, like I said, it's hard to put genies back in the bottle. You know, it's, it's hard to, to unsee things. And I think people who were absolutely unaware of what was going on and the impact that it had is no longer, you know, are no longer unaware. So where people could say, oh, well, you know, everybody has factions. Well, no, <laughs> you know, this is different. And frankly, it's not, uh, um, I don't believe it's a blueprint that any party wants to see, not just Democrats. I mean, you know, and it doesn't have a future, frankly. I mean, with the kind of, of, of investment on many levels that people put into trying to elect their team and trying to get their team, you know, to win a few <laughs> and get things done, to, to 
you know, get to the finals, get to the to the to the playoffs, and get and then have somebody say, "Oh, by the way, you know, I'm going to go join the opposing team." I mean, can you imagine? So this is, but people weren't aware of this, but I believe they are now. So uh, you know, the environment has changed. And that's why I think this unity works, because we've been to the other side, we know what that looks like, and I don't know if anybody needs or wants to go back there again. Mm -hmm. And certainly, again, you don't want that on a national level. So what happens if, if Senator Schumer and Gillibrand just decide to go make a deal with Mitch McConnell? I mean, you know, how does this work? So I think that's over. And it's up to me, obviously, as the leader, to to give the kind of support and respect that I, you know, should be giving as a leader and as a colleague. And I, I believe that we've set that tone. You know, there's nobody coming in feeling uh, less than, unworthy. There's no recriminations. We don't go through reconciliation process. You know, we're, we're, we're a team, and we're, we have to function as that. So I think we're doing fine. Is there, um, I guess, one going forward and one a little bit back, I mean, is there any part of you that's a little frustrated that, you know, part of this deal is everybody has to swear off the primaries and, you know, there's all this, the people who are really awakened, many of them in the Democratic right. par pri uh, Party are backing these challengers right. to the IDC, right. including... Actually, not he. I wouldn't even put him necessarily in that group, but you know, controller Scott Stringer, for example, and right. and some city council members here in the city, you know, are sticking with these right. challengers. Right. Right. Um, does that? I don't know. Frustrate you is the right word. Does it frustrate you that the you you know you you don't have the opportunity here to get the Democratic you know sort of party behind those challenges and say we need the quote unquote real Democrats. You know, again, uh, part of all of this and and you know even though the, the this structure of the deal is different from the one that the governor put forth last uh, year which would have made us co-leaders you know it had always been understood that we you know once we came back together we would not be supporting challengers against any of and that, I mean it goes back to the basic tenet you know a house divided <laughs> against itself can't stamp I mean so I you know, how are we going to do this? You're in my team. You're in my team. I'm not going to be sitting there, you know, having people, you know, somehow uh, uh, undermine the efforts that we have to be team. So that's always been the case. So it doesn't frustrate me. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 this is my conference. I'm, I'm going to support my and conference. would you say to those grassroots groups and even people like Comptroller Stringer and some of the city council members, it's time to stand down. We have bigger goals you know, we get where you're coming from. We've been frustrated with the IDC, but they've come home. You know, you really should think about where you're devoting resources. Well, I, you know, one of the things that I did uh, in the convention, again, was to endorse everybody so that people are very, very clear uh, where I stand. And, um, you know, I think, you know, that, that in and of itself sends a message. I'm certainly... Uh, you know, not going to tell the controller what to do or what not to do. But, uh, you know, as far as what, what I'm doing, I think I, I've made it clear so that people at least know that they can't expect my help. Do you think, I mean, independent of what you think of the candidates, um, the Cynthia Nixon challenge to Governor Cuomo and the primary race that's unfolding, is that a healthy thing? Is that a, is that a good conversation for the party? 
and the state, or is that a house divided? Well, no, I mean, primaries are set up for that, right? I mean, you come and you, you, you give your view of how the world should be. And that's why I, I, I was always, uh, you know, tell people that, you know, the primaries are very often, you know, the most important piece of that because this determines who is going to be your, your standard bearer for the general election. And so many people have slept the primaries not really understanding. So, I mean, I, I certainly uh, have no problem with the fact that there's a primary going on and, you know, the conversations about the vision for, for New York and who should lead it, uh, you know, are valuable. There's, there seems to be, and, and the Cynthia Nixon challenge seems to be indicative of this, there seems to be these sort of two wings of the Democratic primary uh, party. Um, where do you see yourself in, in that discussion? You do represent Westchester, right. where there are a lot of, right. you know, as we say, moderate Democrats, That's swing right. voters. That's right. Um, how do you characterize that? And, and sort of do you see yourself as sort of part of the Andrew Cuomo wing, the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, you know, also a couple of Westchester the, people? the Democratic wing of the Democratic <laughs> uh -huh. Party. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about me is that I check off a lot of these boxes, and I am, as the Democratic leader, the first uh, Democratic leader, I think, outside of New York City in about 100 years. So my perspective is different because of, and, and I think helpful, because of the fact that although, I mean, I know New York City, I was, I was born and raised for the most part in New York City, but I've, I've spent, uh, you know, an equal amount of time in, in Westchester County. So I understand, and my district is, is you know, suburban, it's urban, because you know, as I said, I have Yonkers, I have White Plains, New Rochelle, I have Greenberg, I have the River Towns, the beautiful, uh, you know, Hudson River is right there, as well as Scarsdale. So I just have a wide range, and, you know, so I've, I've been able to, to, I think, you know, gain a perspective that a lot of people don't have as it, as it relates to governing. And, and, you know, you get down to everybody pretty much wants the same thing. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not different. So it's, it's how you deliver these things or, or how, how you are able to characterize these things or how you react is, is really where the differences lie. So, you know, I have always been somebody who... And it's just because of my experiences in life. And I tell people that, you know, my parents, wonderful people, grounded people, you know, did the best they could in a very, very segregated society. And my dad was a Purple Heart uh, veteran, Bronze Star, served in a segregated army. And when he came back, he was not able to take advantage of the GI Bill because it really didn't apply to black soldiers like him, uh, banks wouldn't lend. So the option for, for our family for housing was public housing. Uh, and, and my mom typed 100 words a minute, and corporations weren't hiring black women to do that work. And civil service, however, 
hired her and she was able to ascend to the top of the steno pool for the Corporation Council in New York City because of the merit-based testing that allowed her to ascend. And when I was in corporate America, I wasn't, I didn't even realize that the company that I worked for, which was New York Tell back in the time, you know, weren't promoting blacks much, weren't promoting women, so on and so forth, until there was a class action suit that allowed for people like me to get out of the traditional customer service operators, blah, 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 and get into sales and marketing, which is what happened to me. So... When I got into government, finally, because I was a journalist before, I was in marketing, so it indicated I was a teacher, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of things before I was pulled into government uh, during Yonkers desegregation case, which, oh, by the way, happened in the 90s. And because I was, you know, involved in that case and helping people who were running, uh, I got pulled into government when the the mayor who was actually complying with the desegregation order uh, became the mayor. And it was there that it crystallized for me that government can be helpful. You know, the same government that segregated, uh, you know, my dad in the army and didn't allow him to take advantage of the GI Bill felt responsible enough to to provide public housing. You know, the same government decided it was responsible to decide, you know, to provide a public education. Uh, the same government, although it wouldn't make corporations hire my mother, created a structure where she could maybe get ahead. You know, so I was realizing the same government that said you must desegregate, you know, is, is now trying to figure out ways forward. So, so I decided that if I was going to be in government, I would be that that person in government that would remove barriers. So that's the wing mm -hmm. that I'm in. Mm -hmm. I'm in the, you know, we could do we could do things that remove barriers to success, whether it's, you know, on the reproductive front, whether it's it's, you know, the economic front, you know, there are things we can do to allow people to reach their full potential. She raises a perfect point for my last question because we have a few minutes left. Is most of our guests on the podcast are New York City leaders and, and activists and, and politicians. You are one of the rare ones that's coming from North <laughs> City. And so, uh, you know, this, we focus on housing, on transit, on the issues that are most important to New right. Yorkers. Talk about Yonkers for a second and, and, what, and what it most needs in terms of state policy. I mean, it's right next door to where I live in the Bronx. Yeah. It's um, uh, one of the state's biggest cities, has, as you mentioned, an interesting history on race and housing That's right. itself. That's right. What do you think is its most pressing need right now? Well, right now, its pressing need is, is um, it, it's, it's in a, a crisis right now that we are, again, trying to, to help mitigate because over the years, there's been a lot of instability in terms of um, you know the the um, the government, the the school district. Uh, you know it's it's been one crisis after another. So it's kind of a stability in the financing is frankly what they need. And you know the good news about Yonkers is that it is it is really located in an ideal. Place besides being right next to you in the <laughs> in the Bronx. All my neighbors know. say that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I know they all. I'm sure they're all happy that you're there. Uh, but um, 
you know, right right after 9-11, I think people started really looking at Yonkers. He, Yonkers is one of the big five, and they talk about Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse and so on and so forth. And, and Yonkers, because of the proximity to New York City, it's only 30 minutes away, uh, they've been able to attract a lot of real development. And so I think the future for Yonkers in terms of being able to stabilize those finances uh, is is positive because you know even in in downtown Yonkers they're building like about four thousand new apartments and they're they're you know I mean you just saw MGM is is buying uh, Yonkers Raceway for eight hundred and fifty million dollars you know so I think that Yonkers will have uh, once again a, a a a revenue from 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 its growth and development that will help stabilize it. So that's that's really what it needs. Let me take you back, I think, for my final question, and we appreciate the time. Um, I wanted to come back to, you know, you, you talked about issue barriers and issues of discrimination. Obviously, one of the, the most pressing ones, there's obviously still racial segregation, and that's, that's not anything that um, should be dismissed, but also a lot of attention's been on sexual harassment, gender-based right. uh, harassment. And I wanted to... Um, get your assessment of the harassment, anti-sexual harassment policies that went through and how you, you know, I think with the unity deal and things that happened after the budget, there wasn't a lot of processing of the fact that you weren't included in those talks after after it was sort of promised that you would be in, and how you reconcile the fact that it was basically the four men in the room crafting this policy. Um, I've heard you say already, you know, you're sort of moving on and there's unity, but it still doesn't sit right with a lot of people and it still is strange to me. Well, it was strange to me too <laughs> because I did think that I would be more involved and then, you know, they do what they always do. And that's kind of what it brings us back to the beginning of, of the conversation, which is this is an institution that has institutionalized a lot of stuff. And so breaking those norms, you know, are really, really difficult things to do. And that's why it was just like, okay, you know, there are things that, that you refuse to, to do differently, such as let a woman, you know, be part of, I'm sorry, I won't say a woman because I've been told that there were women involved and there were, you know, a lot of, a lot of you know, AIDS sure. and high levels, they have people. But the elected woman leader, the only elected woman leader that heads a conference in the history of New York State during this Me Too moment, you would have thought you would have been able to get in a room and at least, you know, let her say something. Never happened. So when you, again, walk out into a, a, a legislative session and decide to tear up the rules that you know, govern how things operate, it's, it really is shocking because you can't seem to tear up rules when it comes to any other thing that has happened for, for uh, generations, centuries. So it's, it's really usually very hard to upend norms, but the fact that I am, you know, at this uh, moment, you know, the quote-unquote minority leader, and I and I never used that before because I never felt that my conference, although we were relegated to the position of minority, we never had the least members of any conference. 
So I would not call myself the minority leader, which is why I was the conference leader. But the reality is that now that we are unified and we technically are still in the position of minority, I am the first woman leader in the history of the state. And, um, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, if all goes the way I believe it will go in, in November, you know, we can make some history by having the first woman in the room uh, as the majority leader is one of the people in the room. And I'm assuming they won't tear up those norms when that happens. Well, thank you very much for coming to our room today. Senator Andrew Stewart-Cousins, leader of the Democrats in the Senate. Thank Someone you. call minority leader. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for all the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.